Father, thank you for tonight. We pray that you will guide us and direct us into the study of the book of Hebrews. Thank you for your word. We just pray that you will use it in our lives tonight to guide us and direct us into your will for us and in living and glorifying you in all that we do. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there's a couple of uh, uh, topics, interesting topics in the book of Hebrews. And one of them is the topic of the first uh, or the old and the new covenant. Uh, the old covenant was the covenant that was established by Moses. The nation of Israel lived with that covenant. And then in Jeremiah chapter 32, there was a prophecy of a new covenant to come. And Jesus made reference to that new covenant at uh, the Last Supper. He said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews mentions the new covenant more than any other book in the New Testament. And uh, so it was particularly interesting uh, in the sense of the Jewish people leaving their faith in Christ and going back to their former way uh, of living of, under the Jewish um, system, which was the old covenant. And so next uh, couple of weeks, we'll talk about the two covenants and the difference and why the new covenant now, as opposed to the old and all that that means. There's a lot of information there that lots of people don't really understand about the old covenant and the new covenant. And um, so we are now under the new covenant and it's a part of the kingdom. Uh, and much of the prophecy about the new covenant are prophecies about the kingdom era. And so they understood that, the Jewish people, because they were looking forward to the kingdom. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying, don't go back to the old covenant. Um, it's dead, it's gone. Now we're under the new covenant. And so we'll talk more about that. But there's some hints tonight in chapter 3 about this new covenant. And then the other topic we're going to start in tonight and we're going to talk a lot about in the next couple of weeks is the rest. And uh, no other writer in the New Testament or uh, mentions the rest. Now, he quotes verses in Psalms that talk about the rest, but no place else in, in the New Testament is that term used. And so we'll talk about what it means and what are the options there uh, because it's really an important one. As we get into that topic one of the things it'll do is it'll sort of soften some of the statements that he makes about um, falling away and the consequence of that is we would apply that to the rest as opposed to eternity, forever and ever in heaven. <clears throat> so normally when I do a chapter, I quote it. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> I'm not going to do that tonight. It would be too embarrassing because I don't have this one down very well. And so we'll just go through it. So verse number one, Hebrews chapter three, verse one, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Now he starts this chapter fairly positive and uh, he starts out by calling them holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. And so he's saying, you're great, you're awesome, you're in, you're part of the family of God. And then he says, consider Jesus. And he says this a number of times in the book of Hebrews, focus on Jesus, think about Jesus, look at, at what he did, how he lived. Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, he uses the term high priest in reference to Jesus. He introduces that topic, and then he will talk about it extensively later on in the book. And so it's the beginning of this theme of the new covenant. Because under the old covenant, um, you had to be a Levite to be a priest. Jesus was in the tribe of Judah. Judah was not a tribe that had priests. 
uh, was always the Levite tribe that were the high priests. And so when he calls Jesus the high priest, then there's basically a statement, new system, new program, old program died, passed away, and now we're under the new covenant. So he will uh, talk about this a lot later on in the book. But he begins here by calling Jesus the high priest of our confession. He was faithful. So that's the theme of the book. If we were to say what one word is the theme of the book of Hebrews, if we were to do a quiz when it's all over and I ask you that question, what one word is the most important word in the book of Hebrews and you would say the word faithful. That means you, you don't slide sideways, you don't go backwards, you continue to run the race with endurance, you uh, persevere, you remain faithful. And so that's the goal of this sermon is to encourage and to prompt people to stay faithful. And so he says, consider Jesus. He was faithful. Uh, In spite of all the stuff he went through, he was faithful to him who appointed him. He was faithful to the Father who said, um, you're going to be the Savior of the world, as Moses also was in all his house. So for the Jewish people, they had a hero, and that was Moses. Uh, There were lots of Old Testament uh, heroes, but Moses was the top of the pile in the sense of those that were most important to the Jewish people. Abraham was probably a close second because he was the father of the Jews. But Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. That was their their uh, bread and butter, as it were. That's where the law was. That was everything that they believed and stood for was in that. And so Moses was the man. And so he said Moses was also in, faithful in his house. For he, that's Jesus, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Now, that's a very important statement uh, because as they're thinking about going back to their former way of worshiping, uh, living, uh, this author says, Jesus has got more glory than Moses uh, by just so much as the builder of the house is more honored than the house. And basically what he says there is that Jesus is the creator of everything. He created Moses. So obviously he's better than Moses uh, because Moses wouldn't exist had it not been for Jesus. Uh, He's the builder. He... um, Counted more worthy of glory just by so much as the builder of the house is more glory than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things, the creator of all things, everything exists because of God. Moses was faithful. So what was the key word in the book of Hebrews? Faithful. Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. And so he makes reference... uh, regularly to that which is coming later and that's the reference to the kingdom the millennial kingdom that's described in most of the old testament prophecies in detail in the book of revelation christ was faithful as a son over his house so uh two basic uh, tests paul said test yourself if to see if you are in the faith and uh, remember if we went through that the first test is the test of Righteousness, hungering and thirst for righteousness, the desire to grow. And so the basic statement is, I'm not perfect, but I want to be. You're not perfect, but you want to be. There is in you the will, the desire to grow, to become like Christ. If that desire, that will is not there, there's probably something uh, else that's not there. Because uh, Paul said, if you are a believer in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
One of the basic roles of the Spirit of God is to convict us of sin, that is, make us uh, upset, grieve, guilty uh, uh, because of what we do wrong. And so we, we want to do better, we, we try to do better, we make the effort to do better, we confess our sins, often we grieve, we feel guilty, that's all a sign of life. And so if you hear someone say, oh, no big deal, I'm okay, you're okay, uh, everybody sins, uh, don't get excited. We're going to heaven. It's by grace. Uh, if there's that sort of liberty, it's called, where it doesn't matter if I sin, it's no big deal, then there's probably something missing, which would be a genuine born-again experience. And so you, you want to pass that test. Is there in you this desire for righteousness, a hunger and thirst for righteousness, feeling grieved, guilty over sin in your life? And then the second one, uh, is that you don't drift away, at least not permanently. If you do, you come back. And so it's called the perseverance of the saints. And so that's the statement here, whose house we are, if, the word if is a big word, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end, firm until the end. If we persevere, we finish the race. And so uh, there's an, a, a sense in which if you say to me, are you a believer in Jesus? Are you born again? Are you in the family of God? I say, yes, I am. I'm pretty sure. But uh, our heart is desperately wicked. We can be deceived. So when will I know for sure? When I step into heaven. When I get to the end. Paul said that at the very end of his life. He said, okay, I finished the race. I finished the race. So the perseverance of the saints is the key test that you really are in. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, hear his voice. Revelation chapter 3, it says, if you hear his voice, uh, he said, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me here. If you hear it today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And so that hearing that voice would be that conscience uh, experience where our conscience, our heart, uh, God grieves, convicts, uh, stirs, prompts, and we have that sense inside of us. So if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. I, uh, I used to have calluses all over my hands back in the days when I was a farmer and I um, ran a shovel a lot. We didn't have a backhoe until I almost left the farm. And so I did a lot of digging with a shovel uh, instead of using a backhoe. Every time a cow died, we had to bury it. I was the official uh, uh, hole digger for dead cows. And I don't know if you've ever looked at a cow, how big they are, what, a, uh, what size hole it would take to put them in. And so I was the, the hole digger, the grave digger for cows. And so because I ran a shovel a lot, we also flood irrigated. That is, our irrigation was done with ditches and flooding. We carried a shovel every place we went. And so I, my hands were covered with calluses. And the cool thing about calluses is it keeps you from hurting your hands. It doesn't, you don't feel any pain. So the Bible talks about having a calloused heart. And we do that to ourself. And so if you sin and the Spirit of God convicts you, then you can respond to that in several ways. One way you can uh, repent, you can say, oh, I blew it, 
I sinned, I'm sorry, and own it and confess it, or you can justify it, you can excuse it. It really wasn't my fault. It was my wife's fault. It really wasn't my fault. It was my mother-in-law's fault, if you have a mother-in-law. Uh, my mother-in-law died, so uh, it's where you blame or you excuse or you justify or you say, yeah, I just had a bad day. And so you don't own the sin, you don't confess the sin, you don't grieve over the sin. So the first time you do that, it's not that big a deal. The second time you do it, it's easier. The third time you do it, it's even easier. Pretty soon, if you keep doing that kind of thing in response to the things you do that are in violation of the Word of God, you don't even recognize that you've done it. And uh, you become calloused, hard-hearted, indifferent. And so the uh, warning there is do not harden your hearts. And it's a command to me and to you not to do it. That means I don't have it done to me. Uh, I do it myself. And so one of the things that's super important for any individual that's serious about living their life in a way that's pleasing to Christ is to, uh, in the discipline, how often should you do it? That is, examine your life for sin and confess it to God every single day. The only day that you don't have to is the day you don't sin. So I end every single day with a time where I just replay the day and I confess all known sin to God. So often people say, what if I don't remember it? I just say, confess all known sin to God. If we confess our sins to God, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That means He forgives us of the things that we confess that we're aware of and He also cleanses us from the things that we forgot or aren't aware of. Probably 90% of the sins we commit, we don't even know we do them. Um, But we confess the known sins and God forgives and cleanses. And what happens when we do that regularly is our heart becomes increasingly more sensitive. Uh, Instead of becoming hard, we become soft. Instead of becoming indifferent, we become uh, convicted, easily convicted. And once that happens, then it's easy for God to lead us. And then... uh, Assurance of salvation, people talk about assurance of salvation coming from uh, what the Bible says. You can uh, take that and turn that around and upside down. Assurance of salvation, uh, the best way to feel assured that you're saved is when your heart is responding correctly to sin. That's the sign that there's spiritual life, real life, eternal life inside of you is when you grieve over sin in your life. The other day, a, a young fellow in our church said that he did something and he just about got physically sick. He grieved over it so bad. And I know that there's some who would say, oh, you shouldn't do that. And my response was, good boy, that's the way it's supposed to be. Don't lose that. That means you're alive. There's something happening inside of you. So deal with that, manage it, make a, con- a commitment to God that you're going to work on it. They provoked me, verse 8, they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. So Israel, there's about a million strong. They leave Egypt under Moses' leadership. They cross the Red Sea. And if I don't know if you've ever imagined what that would look like. I visualize that big pile of water on both sides and they walk through that and what uh, that would have, just the experience of that. Water on both sides, the supernatural nature of that thing, the obvious uh, presence of God. To get to the other side and have it, uh, water come back down, drown the Egyptians. And then you're not very long into the wilderness before you're thirsty. And Moses miraculously uh, brings water out of a rock. There's a million 
uh, plus women and kids. It's a lot of people, plus all their livestock. The water that came out of that rock would be like uh, a river. And Moses takes his rod and strikes the rock, and a river of water comes out, and Israel is able to drink. And they see that. They witness that. And they're hungry, and so snow falls from heaven, uh, as it were, a manna. And they go out and pick it up every morning and eat it. Quail blows in, and they have meat to eat. This is a regular occurrence for 40 years. Um, it's mentioned in one of the books that uh, there was sort of a canopy over them so that they didn't cook with the sun. Their shoes didn't wear out. Their clothes didn't wear out. For 40 years, they saw every day miracle after miracle after miracle, but they still uh, sinned. And it says, As in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. They witnessed all my miraculous works for 40 years and still they rebelled against me. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their heart. So I do marriage counseling. I used to do a lot more than I do now, but one of the things that I always talk uh, about, give counsel, is one of the partners will sometimes say something like this. My husband always gets angry. And I'll say, you know, that's a dysfunctional statement. Nobody always does anything. And so you probably should say that he occasionally gets angry. Or maybe on Fridays he gets angry. But don't say he always gets angry. But God's a bit... Uh, he's, he says that they always go astray in their heart. And they did not know my ways. And then here's the, uh, the introduction of that term. I said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So rest in life for them was the promised land. They were uh, promised the land that was promised to Abraham. Abraham, there was a covenant made with Abraham uh, between Abraham and God, and the covenant included the land that was theirs. And so they were leaving Egypt for a destination. That was the promised land that Abraham had lived in, Isaac had lived in, Jacob had lived in, and they had left and had been prisoners in Egypt for 400 years. They were going back to the promised land. And so the promised land, the term rest, is applied to that uh, that land that they were looking forward to, they shall not enter my rest. And so they all died in the wilderness. Everybody that was 20 years and older because of their rebellion against God, except for Caleb and Joshua. Take care. Now, this is all quotation from the Old Testament. And you've got it capitalized there to indicate that. Verse 12, take care, brethren. This is where he gets personal with those that are listening to him or reading Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. So six times in the book of Hebrews, that warning is given. Pay attention to what you have heard. Take care. Don't fall away from the living God. And, uh, but encourage one another, and that's the solution that he gives repeatedly. Together, encouraging, praying for, admonishing, Encourage one another day after day, every day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So hardened, our heart becomes indifferent to sin. Uh, we sin without grieving over it. We sin, we justify, we excuse it. Uh, don't do that. The warning is very, very clear. For we have become partakers of Christ, and we have that if again. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. 
We become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me. So if you go through the book of Hebrews, do a concordance, use your computer, your little Bible program, and type in the word hard. And if you put an asterisk behind it, it'll give you hardened, uh, uh, all the, every reference to the word hard, and see the number of times it's used in the book of Hebrews. Uh, you'll see it's referenced to seven different times. Don't let it happen. Don't let your heart get hard. And, uh, and so the thing I say often is own your sin. Own your sin. If you sinned, you did it. You didn't do it because you had a bad day. You didn't do it because you inherited the tendency from your mother. You sinned and so own it, admit it, confess it, and then God forgives and cleanses. And so it's really important that that hardness doesn't happen Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Didn't everyone except for Caleb and Joshua? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. So the... uh, Rest is the promised land. And so the question is, as we apply that to us, what is that? Is it heaven? Eternity? Is it uh, a state of maturity in this life? And so probably um, it's the millennial kingdom. And so one of the things that you've heard me talk about before is that there are some who will live for eternity uh, with God, but when it comes to the thousand-year reign, the millennial kingdom, they're going to be less than they could be. Now, the term millennial exclusion, the exclusion part, not exactly sure uh, where uh, the person that is excluded is excluded to. There's some discussion about where that would be. Uh, My... uh, favorite statement is if you're excluded from the kingdom you're going to spend a thousand years in uh, Fargo, North Dakota Uh, and so you're not in the lake of fire but you aren't in Jerusalem the new Jerusalem is described in the book of Revelation where Jesus will be physically ruling the world and us with him so in the book of Revelation There's seven churches that are written to. And there's several that are good churches and that nothing bad is said about them. Several that are bad, there's nothing good said about them. But in every one of them, there's a statement made that says, he who overcomes, he who overcomes. Every single one of the churches, that's a concluding statement. He who overcomes. Now, that's not a statement about uh, a believer, a child of God, he who overcomes then gets these rewards. It's a statement made to uh, Christians who someday will stand at the judgment seat of Christ. Second Corinthians chapter uh, 5, verse 10. I'm going to stand before Christ. You're going to stand before Christ. Every one of us will, and we will give an account of our life, and we will be rewarded, recompensed for what we've done in our life, whether good or bad. Uh, Romans 14 says the same thing. First Corinthians 3 says every one of us must be tested our works will be tested by fire. If our works are burned up, we will suffer loss, Yet so, but yet we will be saved. 
So there are some people who will enter into eternity with no works. Everything they've done will be burned up because they've wasted their life. They haven't lived their life for Christ. Others will receive a lot of rewards. And so the letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, that statement, he who overcomes, is a statement of victory. Uh, you've heard me say this before. The Greek word for overcome is the word nikao. It's where Nike gets the name for their shoes. It means to be a champion, a winner, a conqueror. You make the top of the mountain. You get the gold medal. Uh, you are the one who knocks the opponent out. You're the, the overcomer, the winner, the champion. So the, the, he who overcomes then gets these rewards. One of the rewards that's mentioned is that if we overcome, we get to sit on a throne with Jesus. We get to sit on a throne with Jesus, ruling and reigning with him uh, in the kingdom. So that's a reward that some will receive and others will not. And uh, so as the writer of the Hebrews is talking to Jewish people who are well-versed, understand clearly the kingdom, probably their favorite topic in the Old Testament as it's written about and the quotations from Psalms are all kingdom Psalms. And so he said, um, as I swore in my anger, you'll not enter my rest. That is, you will not enter into the promised land on this earth or into the kingdom in the millennium. So I uh, don't aspire to be first. You remember James and John? They're walking along and the mother says to Jesus, Jesus, I want to ask a favor. I'd like my sons to sit one on your right hand and one on your left hand when we get into the kingdom. And uh, Jesus didn't say, oh, nobody's going to be at my right hand and my left hand. Everybody's going to be just sort of equal. He didn't say that. He said, if you want to be great in the kingdom, become a servant to everybody in this life. If you want to be first in the kingdom, then you become last in this life. And so Jesus didn't say there wouldn't be someone first in the kingdom. He just simply said the method that we use in this life is not really the method that God honors. But someone will be first. That was the Apostle Paul's ambition. 1 Corinthians 9, he says, Don't you know that everybody runs a race? Only one wins. Therefore, run in such a way that you might win. So that's what he did. He lived his life wanting very much to be at the right hand of Christ, closer to him than anybody else. And uh, he said, Therefore, I make my body my slave, lest after I have preached to all of you, I myself would be disqualified. Disqualified from being in the rest. And so sometimes uh, it's a little... Uh, we, I like the topic of the rest because it makes the warning not so consequential. Uh, in other words, eternity is for eternity. The millennium is for a thousand years. A thousand years comes to an end. A, an eternity doesn't. And so when you see some of the things that are uh, uh, the consequences, you know, that, is that forever and ever and ever and ever? That's a long time. But if it's only for a thousand years, it's still significant. But a thousand years is a whole lot better than forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And so the theme of the kingdom is repeated in the book of Hebrews a lot, but the word kingdom isn't used. Uh, it's, the reference, it's the word that's used in Psalms in reference to the kingdom, the word rest. And so we'll see it used the whole next chapter. The whole chapter deals with the rest. 
And uh, so how do you get into the rest? You pursue righteousness. You pursue righteousness and you stay faithful. And you end your life at a sprint. So Paul gets to the end of his life and he says, I'm in. I finished well. And for me, there is laid up the crown, the crown of righteousness, which was a reference, I think, to the millennial kingdom and being in that kingdom. So I've talked about the kingdom before. I've talked about millennial exclusion before. It's been a while, but some of you may have forgotten that whole topic and what was about it. Uh, It's a fun one. Lots of people that have various views on it. But uh, the rest is either eternity, uh, the kingdom, or uh, some would say it's a state in this life that you get where you're like Superman. Some people grow so spiritually mature that they walk in the spirit to such an extent it's like they no longer have to work at it. Uh, they've, and then later in chapter 4 we'll see where it says they rested from their works as God did from his on the seventh day. And uh, so that means that they've got to a point where they are a super saint. And there's several people, authors that write about that and call that, um, that say that this is in this life and we get to that point. So I, I, don't, I don't know as I personally have met anybody like that. So I kind of discount that view because of the absence of actual real life people that I think have got to that point where they no longer have to make the effort. So I'm going with the kingdom view on the rest and we'll look at it in the days ahead and how we get in because it is a definite in or out kind of a deal at the judgment seat of Christ. And many are excluded from the millennial kingdom. And uh, I want to be in the kingdom close to Jesus with a really cool job. If you're not in the kingdom, you're out, and that probably means you're going to be shoveling horse manure. And I've done enough of that. I have to do that in the kingdom.